Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? Doing very well. John, there was, um, there's been a lot going on in the world, of course. There's what? the on- ongoing war that uh, if we were in Russia right now, we wouldn't be allowed to say that word. Uh-huh. Or we would be thrown in prison, you know. But also, there was a, a very interesting development in a case that's been brewing in uh, the courts of Appe- the Court of Appeals in Wisconsin, and has now been accepted for review in the Wisconsin Supreme Court, having to do with defense counsel's performance in a homicide case. And I don't know if you saw this, but it has to do with a a lawyer that has been sanctioned, I believe, six times before, basically for the same thing. Is this the one where he didn't didn't, um, research or get an expert um, on something? Well, okay, that's probably one of about 10 things he didn't do. Okay. The main main issue here is that um, this is one of those cases. We see them now and then, and we actually get involved in some of them now and then, where the defendant was on his, in this case, fourth lawyer, which means, um, and he was not able to pay for his own lawyer. So I know this will ring true for you, who uh, is, you, John Birdsall, who is so interested in making sure that indigent people get adequate or excellent representation, ideally. Yes. But um, so they went through the typical rigmarole where somebody gets appointed by the public defender's office. This person, it's a homicide case. And they, they meet with the guy and he says, this, these are my issues. These are my witnesses. This is what I need you to do. And then fairly soon after that, the person appointed by the public defender's office decides that this guy is just too much trouble. He's too needy. I'm going to withdraw. So the judge warns the defendant that if we let this lawyer go, you're not going to be, this isn't going to be a revolving door where you just get to keep on picking new people. We're going to have to get this thing underway. The defendant says, yes, I understand that. I, but this is not working. So the next lawyer Same story, different chapter. Um, And this lawyer, for whatever reason, is unwilling to do all the things that, you know, some of these are basic essential things like research the case, look at this potential motion, talk to this alibi witness. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that falls squarely on the shoulders of counsel and what someone's supposed to do. But you know very well, John, that there's this attitude when someone's appointed by the PD's office that you're not really, you know, you're not expected to do that much. I think there's that thought out there anyway. So same thing happens. This, this lawyer says, Oh, this guy is just too needy. I can't just, I can't keep up with him. He wants all this stuff. The judge grudgingly grants um, a motion to withdraw for the second lawyer. And then third lawyer gets on the case. This one lasts a little bit longer, but it's like six or seven months. But once again, uh, lawyer can't handle it, too busy, whatever. So they end up appointing this fella. And, um, I, you know, I, I'm not going to mention his name just because it's an ongoing proceeding and there's pending OLR investigation, Office of Lawyer Regulation investigation into this guy. But he he gets on the case, takes the appointment, meets with the guy once. Seven months later, he shows up on the day of trial. Okay. 
and tells the client on the day of trial while the jury's out, you know, in the jury pool waiting room. Yeah, you better plead guilty. Uh, you got no chance. <laughs> and, and, and the guy's like, are you prepared for trial? I haven't seen you. He's like, yeah, uh, nah, I'm not. Well, yeah, you don't, you don't, you're really, you don't got a chance. So he ends up pleading guilty in a state of panic. And it, it went through the normal machinations where they do a, you know, a hearing, which happens to be called a Machner hearing. And, you know, of course, the trial court finds that there was no problem with that. You know, how much you don't really need to actually talk to a client in order to represent them. And he showed up on the day of trial. Um, so good enough, you know, like the old potted plant argument, you know. Right, right. Um, so then the uh, they they find that, you know, he really wasn't ineffective and that the client had made all said all the right things because the judge asked all the right questions. Have you had enough time to talk to your counsel? Well, not really. Do you want to have three more minutes? Well, not really. I don't really need three minutes. I would like six months, but no, I, uh, I'm fine. Do you understand what you're doing? Sure. Is this, you know, is this in your best interest? Blah, blah, blah. All the questions that they ask that are kind of fake questions. Do you, do you ever wonder that, by the way, when they're like, do you need more time when the jury's in the hallway? Like, uh, yeah, I need like a month. What would, you, what would happen if you said that? The judge would say, well, you don't get that time. But they right. like to ask because people are afraid to ask for more time. And then they're like, I don't know. I don't need more time. It depends how much you've done in the past in terms of playing games or what they view as manipulation or whatever, you know. So as you can see, this guy already had more or less a track record in this case of asking for other lawyers. He's on his fourth one. And the day he's like, I haven't seen this dude in seven months. I met with him once. We talked about the case for an hour you know, maybe it was an hour and a half. And, and I, you know, I, he hasn't done anything. And the judge is like, well, all your other lawyers did all this other stuff. And he's like, no, they didn't. I asked them to do stuff and they wouldn't do it. So anyway, interestingly. And by stuff, you know, we're talking about like talk to witnesses. And in this case, the guy was um, claiming he was uh, the lookout, not the shooter. Correct. Which is the very, lookout guy, which is very significant. And, um, uh, the problem with some of those defenses is that the other um, compatriots um, will have lawyers, so they can't, you can't interview them, you can't call them as a witness. Um, it's a very problematic um, you know, position to be in, in terms of a lawyer. But, of course, this guy did nothing about anything. So Nothing at all. And, and the big thing here is that, you know, all these months go by, and he's had no contact with him. And, he, and they, can you imagine being that defendant? You show up for trial. And, and I don't know this because it's not part of the case. It's not part of the record. But you and I know what it takes to be ready for trial. And that day of trial, I mean, is kind of the culmination of many, many, many hours of preparation. That is correct. And so I'm, I'm picturing, I, I'm, I'm pretty darn sure that the guy probably would have shown up for his own trial wearing his dress orange uniform. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> if the guy didn't even talk to him for seven months, I doubt he brought him clothes, you know? Right. So, so there he is. And it was, it almost seems like it was a foregone conclusion that the dude was never going to go to trial. And the lawyer figured that out at some point, or he was overtaxed, overworked, didn't care, whatever. 
we should we should just take a a beat here and talk about how common this is um, for um, and 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 not just serious cases like homicides, but for many 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 cases where there's appointed counsel um, or there's a staff public defender, and um, even if they're good lawyers and they're well-meaning, they're so overtaxed, and a lot of them are neither of those, but they're so overtaxed um, and that we see lawyers showing up unprepared, utterly unprepared, and um, and they try and buffalo their clients into uh, a plea just to get rid of the case, not caring what happens to them, and they know the judge isn't going to give them more time because he already gave them you know, tons of time. Um, and I, I actually, uh, real quick story. I, I, um, there was a very prominent attorney and this was 15 years ago or so, uh, who is since disbarred. Uh, and, um, and by I don't know who you're talking about, but I'm not going to name names, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he, he, uh, you know, he was kind of considered, you know, a very high level lawyer, even though he was full of blarney, but, um, um, but he had this triple homicide and the client was like, Hey, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And, um, he, uh, walked in on the day of trial and told him that he had to plead guilty. And the offer was life without parole. That was the offer. Life without parole. So okay. Of course, that's the ultimate um, sentence. The highest penalty in Wisconsin. Yeah. So, of course, you would go to trial on this, no matter what. But no, he talks him into a plea. Immediately, he wants to withdraw his plea. And that's where I came in. And I tried to. And of course, it's the legal standard is much easier to withdraw a plea before sentencing than it is after. So, um, I had an incredibly uh, compelling. Um, legal argument to have this plea withdrawn. The judge wasn't having any of it. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, but this is incredibly common. Uh, and it's very disappointing because as you point out, that's not the way you and I and conscientious lawyers of which there's many um, approach a case. That is we look at a trial date. All right. Oh, well, we can pick this up on the other side, but um, uh, important points coming up. All right. We'll be right back. We are back with more legal defense. With All right. John, I know that we ha- we cut you off midstream there, which is can be a dangerous thing to do in certain circumstances. But we're going to let you. <laughs> we're going to let the flow keep going. Well, what when we left? When we left, our protagonist was um, no. Um, <laughs> so we were talking about how um, to. Uh, conscientious lawyers approach cases, and and this would um, go for civil lawyers, I suppose, as well as criminal defense lawyers. But um, that is that when they establish a trial date, six months down the road, whatever, then we um, we don't wait until the day of trial and just show up and wing it. We um, come up with a plan. We establish our investigation plan. We determine if we need experts. We, um, we start that process immediately. We review everything. We get everything to the client so that the client can help us. And as the months go on and things develop and we have new leads and we have new ideas and that all like 
is a winnowing process to come down to our final arguments. And so in the weeks before trial, we've thought this through thoroughly. We've researched it. We've done our motions. And, um, and then that's when you can say to the client, well, you know, um, he came to me with his offer. I don't know. We're ready for trial. It's your decision, but um, I'm not a fan of it. I think we can do better at trial, but ultimately, it's, you know, those, those sorts of conversations. Right, right. Um, and a lot of times we'll look at a case and we'll know this is locked and loaded. There's no way that this is going to be settled because the penalties are so harsh or whatever. And sometimes they do, but you prepare as if it's not going to. And that's what this lawyer just apparently never got the memo about how to look. <laughs> to <You> be know. ready. <laughs> well, so it's a four-letter word. It's called work. <laughs> yeah, you know? but, but, but here's the thing, and you, you know this very well, John, because um, of all the, the hard work you've done over the years to try and improve the status quo. And you've, you've made tremendous accomplishments, of course, but there's still a culture of complacency in the you know public defense world. And I'm not talking about public defenders. And I want to be clear on this. I say this all the time. When people come to our office and say, hey, I don't want the public pretender, I, I'm very careful to point out that these are hardworking um, people that get underpaid, underappreciated, overworked, and have no control over their workload. They're in they're responding to whatever the DA's office wants to charge. And sometimes we all know it, you know, they'll, they'll have a slow period where they'll, where they will charge minor offenses just to keep things moving and to justify their funding and to keep their numbers going. But, you know, the people in the public defender's office do a very honorable job and they don't get paid very well. I, you know, I I agree with all of that. And it, but, the, but the problem is, and, and you know that technically, I know this is a rule that's violated frequently, but technically somebody who works in the public defender's office isn't supposed to stay in the office past five o'clock and they're not supposed to work on the weekends. You know, <sighs> yeah. do you know why it's a fiscal issue? Well, because, because there's, they're supposed to be accounted for, you know, the funding for those positions are supposed to be based on a certain number of hours. And if they exceed them, then they're basically contributing more time than what we've budgeted for. But the reality is, these are people that we that they care about and we care about. So, you know, I, I usually put it like this when I'm talking to someone who is thinking about not going with the public defender. You know, it's not that they don't care. It's not that they are not talented. It's not that their heart isn't in the right place. It's that they have no control over their workload. And oh, unfortunately, oh. we we don't allocate sufficient resources well, because it is publicly funded. That's exactly where I was going with it. The legislature, historically and presently, purposely underfunds the public defender's office. Mm-hmm. Purposely. And partly because... A lot of legislators hate the fact that they hate, that the state has to be responsible for for what they see view as protecting and coddling criminals, right? And um, they they want to um, incarcerate as many people as possible as long as they're you know um, living in Milwaukee and their their skin is uh, the non-white. Right. Why, why, John? Let me just ask you: Why yeah. do we have this constant struggle? 
you and I have been both been doing this for three decades. And it seems like there is constantly this battle between this dark ages mentality where you lock them all up. There's good guys and bad guys and the bad guys go away forever and the good guys never get charged with any offense. And they're just the, you know, you know, you know what I mean? There's this bifurcation of society. Look, creating and- the good versus evil um, uh, paradigm is so easy to grasp and it's so popular. That's why it's used in movies. That's why it's used in novels. That's why it's so effective. And legislators got the memo about this because a lot of them built their careers on just being tough on criminals, right? Right. And that's, uh, that's and the easy way to go. It really criminals, is. Criminals means people that will never vote for them, which means you know, um, you know, uh, non-white folks in urban areas, and that's just that's just a fact, and that's uh, that is reflected in the statistics in Wisconsin, where we have, you know, the highest rate of black male incarceration in the country, and by far, um, and and so. Uh, you know, it's 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 such an easy thing to normalize, which we have normalized it. We've normalized prison, uh, and it's it's um, uh, you know it's <clears throat> people want this what they consider moral clarity, right? And so that's why we increase penalties as a means of supposedly addressing problems, and we just keep doing it, keep doing it, and keep doing it. And of course, it doesn't address the problems. It didn't do it for drunk driving. It doesn't do it for child pornography. It doesn't do it for murder. You know, it doesn't do it for sexual assault. Uh, but we just keep upping the penalties uh, because we just like to. It makes us feel good. You know, you know. One of the things that this moral clarity is in striking. Uh, display right now in Ukraine. Um, a lot of our wars since World War II have been kind of weird, ambiguous, um, or just all right wrong. You know, Korea was kind of a police action, but what was it really? And what were we doing there? And then, you know, we'd have, um, and then we were kind of slowly getting involved in Vietnam, and then it exploded, and then, you know, <laughs> and, um, uh, and well, then it depends on what, what you mean by slowly getting involved. If you mean by um, uh, propping a puppet government that yeah. was going to be ineffectual, then yes, slowly. Yeah. Well, I mean, even started in the fifties, we were in Vietnam, but but you know, but the point is, is that it, it, it you know supposedly it was this fight against communism, but the moral clarity wasn't there. It wasn't a Hitler thing. It wasn't the Emperor of Japan. It wasn't that sort of black and white, they're wrong, we're right sort of thing. And Ukraine is, <laughs> you know, Ukraine really is, you know, despite whatever arguments you make about. Our, our listeners can't see this right now, but I'm nodding my head very yes. vigorously. Yes. And that's why a lot of, um, I don't know how many, but there's a lot of uh, ex-American servicemen that are just like packing up and moving there to help fight. You know, because it is something that's clear, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, were those clear? Eh, you know, they kind of were sold as being clear, but they never really were, you know, especially the length of time we were there. I mean, Afghanistan, um, we went there because they were harboring the guys that did 9-11. Okay, well, that's pretty clear. But then pretty soon we're in, we're in. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a different situation altogether. You know, and I, <clears throat> I, 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 I go ahead. Sorry. And I guess the point is, is that, you know, um, a lot of those um, situations were not cut and dried and they were not 
black and white and clear. And what's sold um, as black and white and clear is um, uh, criminal process and criminal penalties. And, um, and it's very popular and it sells well um, in the political arena. It sells well on the media, you know, the news. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it's, um, and it's a tragic thing, um, that, you know, we just keep militarizing police all over the country, you know, and that's where there's, there's these backlashes, you know, the George Floyd stuff, the, you know, the Breonna Taylor, the, you know, well, the list is too long to go through, Very but, long list. Yeah. You know, um, and so we've got to denormalize you know, prison, the prison model of corrections in this country and, um, and especially in the state. And that's a tough nut to crack, you know, because both parties seem to love it, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it, it also has to do with, um, you know, when, when you have a superficial, uh, overreaching argument about, like you say, good versus evil, black versus white, um, you know, that that's something that I think politicians anticipate is very easy for people to understand, which honestly is considering or or believing that voters are stupid. And it kind of offends it offends me on that level. But also, you know, I, I get the sense as when we're in court on all these laws that are done that way. And, you know, I, I feel people I see people being cowards when it comes to what the right thing to do is and to really investigate or take a serious stance on things. All right. We got to take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. And John, I know that you, uh, over the break, you said, Hey, let's talk about Clarence Thomas's wife. <laughs> so let's do that. Well, you know, it is so law related. Um, uh, first of all, justice Clarence Thomas, uh, associate justice of the Supreme court. Obviously, if you remember, if you're of our generation, you remember his um, rather contentious um, confirmation hearings, 1991, I think. He is now the longest serving member of the court. I was in law school then, by the way. I was just out of law school, um, and uh, they were uh, bitter, those hearings. They were absolutely bitter, and he compared them to um, a modern-day um, electronic lynching. And that was some very powerful rhetoric from him. And um, he wasn't entirely wrong, you know. Um, but th that's a, that's yeah. not the point now. The point now is he's been on the court yeah. for odd years. And his wife, Jenny, she goes by Ginny, I guess. Uh, um, and she is a uh, very connected, um, far-right activist who apparently, according to some re recently discovered texts that were turned over by uh, Mark Meadows, the Trump's former chief of staff, um, she was working feverishly to overturn the election by communicating directly with him, which, of course, implicates Trump, to do something to get Pence to not count the uh, ballots from certain states so that Trump stays in power. So, and she was completely sold on this whole conspiracy thing and Biden's evil and, you know, this whole good versus evil thing is playing out there too, you know, sort of like the QAnon thing. And um, so uh, 
so she is deeply involved. She was at the January 6th speeches at the Ellipse. Apparently, she didn't go down to the Capitol with people because it was too cold. But she was, you know, constantly texting members of White House staff saying, you need to do something here and you need to take action and blah, 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 blah. Well, um, her husband, when those cases would come to the court about what you could subpoena and what you couldn't and who, you know, had to honor subpoenas or what documents need to be turned over, he never revealed any of this connection. Well, did, uh, and oh, I, I, I'm not trying to be facetious here, but did did he know or do we know if he knew? Well, they claim, the two of them, that they never talk about each other's works. And... Um, I mean, that's yes, theoretically they also, possible, but they, they also call themselves best friends. So it strains um, credulity, credulity. Well, you're my best friend, and I rarely talk about work with you. No, I'm just kidding. We actually <laughs> talk about work every day. <laughs> um, so it's 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 um, it's hard to believe that that didn't occur, and that he doesn't know who her circle of friends are, and he doesn't know how she feels about um, certain conspiracy theories or whatever. Now, let me just butt in here because, you know, my experience with uh, observing Justice Thomas on the bench is that sometimes it's hard to tell if he's awake. Um, and I, that's just how I picture him, like, at home at the dinner table. Like, he might be just kind of snoozing or something. Um, yeah. I'm, how was your I'm, day, honey? I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing that's not the case. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, for decades he never asked a single question right he was he's the least uh, question the least common question at ants asker of all justices in fact it would make news if he asked a question which by the way and i want to do a whole show on this sometime and maybe we'll talk about it today is reforms to the supreme court and this whole static nine member for life thing should be changed and it can be changed without a constitutional amendment you know we can have rotating um, uh, justices and just have people on senior status and they can go down to the circuit courts, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, um, and so that, so that we don't have this, um, constant, um, uh, I guess drama about, you know, who's sick, you know, he went to the hospital a couple of weeks ago and it was like, Oh my gosh, you know, what's going to happen, you know? And, um, it's sort of like palace intrigue, but anyway, um, the point is, is like, should he recuse himself in these cases? And he hasn't. He's refused to. The judge, the chief justice, John Roberts, cannot force him. And there's no ethical rules applying to members of the Supreme Court, believe it or not. That's a good point, because if this were if this were to happen in a circuit court or court of appeals or even, for that matter, the state Supreme Court situation, there'd be a higher level that things could be taken to. There is no higher level than the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Um, there's no there's no authority over that. And, and if Roberts is the authority, that's not, you know, that that's not saying much because basically it's a matter of the individual justice's opinion, internal opinion about what goes on in his or her head about whether right. there is a conflict or not, which is very, so, very here's, a, here's a quote from Nancy Pelosi, who you know, obviously has some uh, say in, you know, how things are run in Washington. She goes, quote, I hear people say from time to time, well, it's a personal decision of a judge as to whether he should recuse himself. 
Well, if your wife is an admitted and proud contributor to a coup of your of our country, maybe you should weigh that in your ethical standards. End quote. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty. I thought that was pretty deft. And uh, that's a very good point that you make because the rest of us that aren't Supreme Court justices have to consider the appearance of impropriety. That is correct. That is in the judicial code for judges in Wisconsin. That's it should be. And it's not just whether whether in your your own mind that you believe there's a conflict or not. You have to consider the fact that the public would perceive that there is. And that kicks in an additional ethical obligation. So we're supposed to police ourselves as as lawyers, as just regular run-of-the-mill, boots-on-the-ground lawyers. We have to consider that all the time. The appearance of impropriety. That's one of the rules. Even if there isn't a conflict of interest when we're representing somebody, we have to think about whether it would appear that way. And if the there would be a suggestion that there's something improper going on, we have to consider that. So, And I have to believe that uh, John Roberts is having some serious uh, behind-the-scenes conversations with him because um, it's seriously affecting the uh, – the, you know, the court's already – taken a lot of credibility hits for um, some of its rulings, uh, like gutting the Voting Rights Act, um, and then on the other side, you know, uh, approving of gay marriage. And, you know, so on both sides, uh, it's it's um, it's been rocked by just the decisions that they have. And so it's already got a credibility problem. And the credibility problem is this. A lot of people look at them as political hacks, as another um, committee of the Congress, and um, and they're just like politicians in black robes, just you know making stuff up with fancy words to get their their policy ends. And you know what we need? We need somebody who has experience as a criminal defense lawyer mm-hmm. on that Supreme Court. That would you know be good. <laughs> I have a suggestion, and I don't know if anybody thought of this, but I have this <laughs> one person that I've recognized recently. Yeah. That might work out. Her name is um, Katanji Brown Jackson, I think. Jackson. Oh, yes. Anyways, she is terrific. She's been on TV so much. I think yeah. she should be appointed. Personally. I think I think someone should do that. Oh wait, it's already happened. Yeah. Okay. Oh, really? <laughs> but well, but uh, well, let's talk about those hearings because you know the. Oh my the, goodness. Well, you know. What is with all this political staging? I mean, come on. This is utterly ridiculous that this is a questionable candidate in any way. I mean, come on. This dovetails perfectly with what we were just talking about, how this is viewed as a political process. And I have to tell you, I watched not every minute, but a lot of those hearings. And um, first of all, the way she acquitted herself was like um, very impressive. Uh, And, um, but more than that, it was kind of a masterclass in judicial decision making and analysis, walking the, these senators through the process that she goes through. And it made perfect sense. And she's just like really, 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 really sharp um, and very balanced, it seemed to me. And, it, that, and, that's, and I say that objectively. And um uh, but I couldn't agree with you more that she, her experience as a public defender and just her experience as somebody of color is going to be invaluable to this um, court that is not only to the members of the court currently, but to the public to see yeah. 
that this is a little more reflective of what the America- integrity of the court, the integrity of the court. That's something we should all be watching out for. And that's all we have. <laughs> right. They have, they have the, no, buck, the buck does stop there. There ain't nothing higher, you know. Well, they have no means to enforce their rulings, as Andrew Jackson pointed out in the 18th. <laughs> right, right. And so that's absolutely true. You know, and, and as many southern states pointed out, when they wouldn't follow a Supreme Court ruling, you know, so, you had to bring the National Guard in. Yeah, so without credibility, it's you know, it's kind of meaningless. And and it would be nice if we could rebuild that. And you know, and I and I see um, uh, John Roberts trying to do that, but eh, not always successfully. All right, dude, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. We are back with more legal defense and. Um, There's so much. There's so much we haven't even touched on. Um, You know the uh, uh, the Hunter Biden stuff. The uh, possibly Mm. the 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 decision by the Manhattan DA not to go after the Trump Organization, which was inexplicable, and um, and two people that were involved in acquitting over it. You know, it's just like. But I think that um, Judge Jackson's uh, arrival on the scene and performance in these. uh, hearings, if you can call them hearings, uh, uh, you know, was tops the list of important legal to- topics right now, you know, for the reasons that we talked about. I think she'll bring a measure of credibility um, to the court, at least shore it up somewhat, you know, because she's not, <clears throat> from what I've seen, she's not, you know, some outlandish liberal that people are just going to paint as, a, you know. Um, of course not. You know, and also she's not going to be tainted. Everybody thought that this nominee would, would be tainted because Biden explicitly said, "I'm picking a black woman." Right, and so I, I, get, I get that. I mean, and that that did sort. Of, I mean, on the one hand, it served the purpose of saying, and what he was trying to say is that, you know, he he has a part in making sure that the representation on the court is appropriate as it relates to, you know, there has never been a black woman on the Supreme Court. And the time has come, it's long overdue, in fact, for that to be the case. But that's a different, that's just part of the story. And I think that that just misled people into thinking that this was, you know, a token situation. Right. right. She really isn't. I mean, she's she's an incredible jurist. Yeah, she's clearly shown that's not the case. Clearly. I mean, um, her qualifications are just phenomenal. Um, and that's why, you know, the uh, the Josh Hollies, the the Ted Cruz's uh, were using this as a performative uh, opportunity to, uh, to build their um, uh, credibility, I guess, with the QAnon crowd. Um, that's the only explanation for it. And to run for president, you know, build the base. And um, uh, and so that's a shame that it turned into a mockery in some um, corners of that debate. Uh, on the other hand, you know, um, the way she handled it was absolutely brilliant, I thought, you know, and yeah, I think she's going to be the test of a lifetime when you go through that. Yeah. And uh, I, I didn't see it all, but did she, did she use the balls and strikes thing that pretty much every every uh, oh. previous uh, candidate going back to? I think John Roberts has nope. said. <laughs> nope, she did not. And, um, okay. and, and that was always a dumb um comparison 
you know, yeah. I, I always thought, because that's just not true. Um, it isn't true. You're absolutely right about that. You know, um, values matter in judges. and they're, sure they're, does, but It's world, way more complicated than, than your, balls and strikes. Your worldview and your values are going to inform how you um, apply the law to the facts. And that's what everybody says. We're going to apply the law to the facts. All right, that's fine. But your views are going to affect how you do that. You know who you know who I have great respect for that did exactly that in her campaign in Wisconsin was um, uh, Rebecca Dallet, who's mm-hmm. a sitting justice on our Supreme Court. And I I'll never forget I was at a Rotary uh, Club, uh, it was a noon luncheon networking thing, and um, uh, it was her and her opponent, whose name I don't even remember now. But he was given the whole, um, I have a judicial hat, and when I put that hat on, I forget all my personal views. And, you know, he used to work for Scott Walker and, you know, all this other stuff. And she's like, that's nonsense. And she yeah. said it was a campaign. It is total nonsense. Because if that were true, you could have a 10-year-old be on the Supreme Court, you know? It, you have to have life experience and life so, life uh, perspective. So I was like, wow, that is a breath of fresh air to hear somebody actually say that out loud during a campaign and not just hand us a line of bull. And um, and so and, and that's that's what I feel like we got from Judge Jackson. You know, we we got a very refined, um, serious person who explained things rationally and didn't just give us trite um, BS. Um, that she practiced. I, I, I again, I didn't see the whole thing, but did did they ask her if she likes beer? I, I... <laughs> no, but you know, you know what did happen was uh, Lindsey Graham, among others, um, harangued about how unfair um, Brett Kavanaugh was treated. They, oh, they were oh, so they so, the, so they're going to pile it on her just for exactly. spite. Is that what so oh, it was it was it was almost like a child having a tantrum. Yeah. Um, and and I was just I was I was like, I'm sorry, are these United States senators um, for real? I, I just don't get it. But all right. Anyway, um, uh, so and I, I think there's a lot of perception. I, and I wonder, uh, you know, I'll talk about Putin for a second here just to interject. But, you know, he surrounds himself with people that tell him what he wants to hear. And there's been news earlier this week that he. It has there's suspicion anyway that he's been not informed about the lack of success on the uh, battlefield and that there's been reports of who knows if they're true or not. But I mean, it, it kind of makes sense that it wouldn't be reaching him that, you know, there's been Russian soldiers that have been sabotaging their own mission, um, you know, and these are all conscripts that were showed up for their annual duty. I mean, I don't know if you heard about this, John, but they showed up like, hey, it's my annual drill. And they're like, you're going to be a part of a peacekeeping force. And now there's all this going on. But well, I you know, wonder, you know, when you hear reports like that, I wonder how much to believe because mm-hmm. of the massive disinformation that um, uh, Putin spends. And, and our own government does that, too. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. But oh, um, that's, that's, that's my point. Coming back to the Ted Cruz's and the Lindsey Graham's is that, I mean, are they, are, is that how they're calculating their electorate? They're, the, the people that they represent is that they want them to act like buffoons in this situation. I, I guess buffoonery is uh, popular in some quarters. 
Well, I guess. <laughs> I, I like rationality personally. That's why I am um, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of Tony Evers, and, and not because just because he's a Democrat, but and that's absolutely not the case. It's because of his rationality. He's a very yeah, he doesn't make outrageous statements or do anything weird. <laughs> credible person now he is he um charismatic no you know <laughs> he's, he's, unless you like the uh you know the attractive male librarian type <laughs> my point is is that the uh the vivacious the, the the loud the boisterous you know the tommy thompson's the you know the um uh, you know, and there's a place for that, you know, to rally people to a cause to, you know, to to sell them on um, moving forward with political ideas or whatever. Um, uh, if as long as those ideas aren't like loopy crazy. But um, and so there's a there's 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 a place for that. Reagan is a perfect example of an extremely charismatic guy, you know, and he was unbelievably popular. I mean, one of the greatest. I know I've told you this before, but you know, when I, when I was a kid and he was running and I had my own views and I I was in a very, I grew up in a very liberal household and the general view amongst uh, those of us that lived there was that who is this Hollywood actor that thinks he can be president? Like you gotta be more, you gotta be more than a Hollywood actor. Right. But, uh, you know, I would be glad to have Ronald Reagan you know, back again because because there's there's there was some sanity there. You know, yeah. it actually well, uh, look, made who's sense. Leading, look who's leading the fight in Ukraine. He's an actor. Right? Well, yeah, he was a comedian, for heaven's sake. Right? And, you know, and, and I, I guess I've come around to believe that, you know, just because somebody has a particular vocation, and this is a good thing. This is what one of the good things that happened from the Trump era is that it reminded us that you don't have to be a career politician to be the president, right? Yeah. I mean, that's and, how that's how it should have been all, it all along. Us about how um, important it is um, to have a rational actor in that spot, because a lot of the presidential's. Um, uh, presidential, well, powers, but also presidential actions are norms. They're not laws, you know, and he, you know, and, and, and Trump would just like throw them out the window and, <clears throat> and do kind of reckless things. And, um, uh, and, and he did them purposely and people loved it. Some people loved them, you know, and I thought it was reckless and dangerous, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, it, 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 it seemed to sell in some quarters and um, you know, w- whether his, it's really interesting. I think his political star has started to fade a little bit. Like the, the Trumpism that he started might continue without him. I don't know. We'll see. That's if a good point. Amped, That's good. Uh, you know, <laughs> all right, we got to wrap it up, man. It's time right. for us to go, but we will be back next week as we are every week right here on 1330 and 101.5. 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock a.m. It's Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend. Have a great one.